City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, playwright, director, choreographer Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. Now in their 26th year, they're coming to you from the new Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars offer a wonderful opportunity to explore with the panelists the realities of working in the theatre. Today's seminar is devoted to playwrights, directors, and choreographers, and we hope to learn something about how they became professionals, their work ethic, and their reasons for remaining in the theater. I'm Isabel Stevenson, chairman of the board of the American Theater Wing, and I think you will both enjoy and learn from today's experience. So now, let me introduce our moderators for the seminar. First, a distinguished member of the theatrical community and chairman of the board of the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center, George White, and Pia Lindstrom, theater critic and TV personality. I think you will enjoy meeting with them and listening to them. Um, I'm going to begin by uh, introducing the uh, lady on my right, um, Kathleen Marshall, who, to my delight and astonishment for one so young <laughs> uh, and, and amazement, is uh, the choreographer, is the artistic director of the celebrated uh, encore series at City Center and is now just fresh from choreographing Kiss Me Kate, um, which uh, will open very soon. November 18th. November 18th, indeed. And on her right is a uh, uh, very distinguished and marvelous director who I was kidding by saying he was bi-coastal, but not in the American sense, the English coast and the east coast of the United States, Vivian Madelon, who uh, won the Tony Award for Mornings at Seven and has uh, a long and distinguished career as a teacher, uh, television director, and uh, has directed just about everywhere on, in the United States and, and uh, in, in England. Welcome. Thank you. And next to me is Doug Carter Bean, playwright and author. <laughs> Advice from a Caterpillar is his, White Lies, Devil May Care in the Regional Theater, Country Club, Film, to Fu Wong, thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Never get it right. They never get it right. <laughs> Is that wrong? To Wong Fu. To Wong Fu. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. To Wong Fu. We'll get it right. And I just read that your play, As Bees and Honey Drown, was one of the most... Uh, produced plays of the year. It was, yeah, That's across the country. Good. And next to you is Rob Marshall, who is the brother of Kathleen, which is a story right <laughs> in itself there. Uh, director, choreographer, <coughs> you've got a Tony nomination for Damn Yankees, a Tony nomination for She Loves Me, a Tony nomination for Kiss of the Spider Woman, Victor Victoria, a funny thing happened all the way to the forum is his as well. He has a lot of international experiences, had plays produced in London, and has done an immense amount of television work. And next to him is John Peelmeyer. He's a playwright, 
who wrote Agnes of God, The Boys of Winter, Sleight of Hand. He's co-written plays, and he's been a producer as well. And he won the 1999 Edgar Award, given by the Mystery Writers of America, for the best play, Voices in the Dark. Welcome. In this uh, issue of Variety I was reading, what I found about your play that uh, was uh, so produced, was uh, a ad for a play, and it said, one set, seven actors. And that was like the big deal. It didn't say it was a good play or anything. They were selling the play. And I was wondering if each of you would address how important is it with today's e economics to have just one set and, and a few actors? John, well, uh, you know, I don't. Uh, was it my play? I don't no, think no. it was my play because no, actually my play is one set and seven actors. This is good. <laughs> 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 that must be perfect. Then. Oh, uh, so is mine. Do you have to do that today? Think about how many I sets. You're I certainly put think in? about it a lot when I write for theater. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> if you're dealing with a naturalistic play, which I usually don't write. Uh, voices being an exception, I was very aware of it needing to be one set. Actually, a, an earlier version of the play ended with a, uh, a, a small, very small scene in a slightly different set that, when it was first done, was basically a stool and a spotlight. But it took so much time for the actor to get into that spotlight, it kind of uh, took all the air out of the <laughs> evening. So it was also artistically, I think, very important for me in this particular sense to write a play that was in one set, seven actors. And it, you know, if you want a play to be done, that has to, you know, that's how you have to do it, I think, today. So producers are looking for small. Sure. I would never write a play with 20 actors. I'd like to, <laughs> but <laughs> I, would you I can't. You recant, I, well, you know, I'm not that suicidal, but <laughs> stick around. I may be my, I mean, we're, I'm artistic director of a theater company called Drama Department. And uh, we're doing our first big, a, a lot of the plays from the 20s and 30s, early 30s, had big casts, the comedies especially. Like we're doing a, a, show, a production of The Torchbearers in February, which has a cast of 15, mm -hmm. which is impossible to double. And that's tough. I mean, we know going into it, we can probably only run it for four weeks, because that's about how long we can afford to pay the actors on the amount of money that we would have to do the show. It's, it's just uneconomical. To, to do the other thing. I mean, uh, there are exceptions for uh, major pieces. Of, if someone came out with a masterpiece that was a cast of 25, I bet you it would get mounted. But it's, it's tough. It's really tough. See, I think as a writer, it's important that we, that we think about where we want the play to end up. I, certainly, colleges around this country are totally right. capable of doing plays right. with casts of 20 or 30. But we never think of that in terms of the end, the final end result of where we want our place to go. We think in terms of regionals or New York theater. And that obviously is going to limit our, uh, well, because of the, the limitations of the, the budget limitations of those places, it's going to limit and affect how we write plays if we want them to be done in, those, in that arena. I mean, even musicals have been downsized. Kathleen and I have done mm -hmm. many revivals. And when we look at the original cast list, you know, I, uh, I, I did uh, a production of Little Me last year, and the original cast list was something like, I think, 45 or 50, and it was like <laughs> 24 <laughs> dancers <laughs> and 15 singers separated. 
and then, you know, 15 character actors and three stars or something like that. It was extraordinary. The original cast of Kiss Me Kate had 28 in the ensemble. We have 25 people total, total. on stage. Yeah, mm. exactly. And I think, we have mm. to, I think Little Me ended up with 19 total. So we had m less people than the dancers or the singing ensemble. But is, is that necessarily, I mean, I know on paper it sounds not like a good thing, but is it necessarily a bad thing to force yourself to compress and to distill the ideas that are in the show? Because it strikes me that a lot of the musicals that were done where you had the principals, then you had the singers of Brigadoon and the dancers <laughs> of Brigadoon. I mean, was it not just an, an enormous amount of fat on, on no. the production? I just, no, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that uh, these days it's not even up to a, a playwright is just being practical if he says, or she says, I have to restrict the number of people in this because most producers will not take the trouble, and I'm not saying this against them, to read a play which has 20 characters and 10 sets. Uh, because mm -hmm. they know they cannot possibly afford to mount it in a commercial setting. You can afford to mount it for your few weeks yeah. off-Broadway or under, I don't know what kind of a contract you operate under, but you, you can find the money or even get enhancement money for four weeks, right. but not for a, an right. open-ended run. <coughs> when I ran the Hampstead Theatre in London, which was, uh, you know, an, an off-Broadway house. And we were probably, I was the second artistic director there, and we were really the first off-West End theatre to which the critics came on a regular basis. But I used to send out letters when people said they wanted to send me a play, saying, would you please bear in mind that we try to average out the year doing eight characters in one set. Mm -hmm. So if I got a two-character play, then the next play I could do could have <laughs> 10 or 12. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we had mm -hmm. to do. Right. And I'm going back to 1970. Wow. That's 30 yeah. years ago. And just, just also in terms of fat, in terms of writing, just on a technical look at writing, if you have 40 characters in a two-hour play, are you going to have 40 well-rounded characters mm -hmm. that we're going to see? Or are you just going to have different aspects of personalities embodied in one person? Like, oh, that's the greedy one. Or that's the <laughs> funny <laughs> one. Oh, that's the evil one. That's mm -hmm. the problem of, of melodramas, if you look at old, the, the, the old American plays of the last century, was that they were one aspect. I've only got time for one aspect, because we've got a lot of people <laughs> on this stage, so you're getting my aspect. And uh, you I mean, you want to create people who are completely fascinating and contradictory, and, and, and you kind of wonder what's going on with them next. And it's, you know, seven characters in one room is an interesting way to do that. Or a blank space. Is <coughs> but then you have a play like Iceman Cometh, which yeah. is not done very much at all, I think primarily because of the size. Yeah. of its cast. The length, John. And the length. <laughs> and the length. <laughs> I was in the Iceman Cometh, <laughs> and I quit acting the day closed. closed. <laughs> <laughs> well, besides one set, seven actors, I think producers' other favorite thing is, you know, one act, 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. yeah. They love and that. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now plays. Well, yeah. you know. Well, I, I heard, a, I heard a, a thing on the radio the other day where, where they were talking about a play, the same kind of thing you were talking about, Pete, that said, and it's 
90 minutes of fun. <laughs> no, well, we, we did a thousands cheer. We had cut it. We had gotten to cut all the fat out. And it was about an hour. Was an hour it and was ten like minutes. It was an hour ten. It was an hour oh. ten, and and the New York Times review said a breezy hour ten, <laughs> and the press people said that's your ad campaign. Yeah, mm -hmm. jam oh. Publicize that. People love yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, but that's yeah, that's the audience demands. Yeah, I mm -hmm. mean that's because sure. we're used to watching. But you're all talking about editing. <coughs> After the fact, in a sense, of cutting down, right. of looking at it and say, you don't need that many people, and you don't need that much lines, you don't need all of that. That's, that's, that's editing, in fact. But I'm surprised at hearing that you write with that in mind. No, well, what we're saying by saying that we edit is that, obviously, if everyone's doing it, there's a reason why you shouldn't be writing it in the first place. <laughs> what I'm saying is, if someone does write a... a you know, an Angels in America, that's a very long play and has a very big cast. I don't think the cast of Angels was that big, but if someone had written, it would get, it would get produced. And it would probably lose money, mm -hmm. and it would be a monumental theatrical event. And, and if you do write, it, do write it, it will, and it's truly great, it will get done. If you have, if you even if you have to do it yourself, it'll get done. <laughs> but I think that um, just in terms of, I mean, I choose to write, my next play has you know, six characters in it and one kind of blank space. I just like really getting into the characters deeper, and that's uh, less time. I mean, I've written a musical that is really? one set. <laughs> 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 uh, because I really need to suffer more. I, really, I thought the book writer of a musical was either that or Cyanide. Yeah, he's the <laughs> lowest in the room when you walk in. I am. Okay. I am. I'm like, I'm like producer's boyfriend, I think, is somewhat <laughs> higher above on the scale than book writer. So, but um, I, I was really, I, I mean, it's a, it is 15 characters. And, and I have had so many meetings with commercial producers saying, it's an original musical with 15 characters. Mm. That's, a, that's a big gamble. Well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, that's, oh. and that's, with, that's with a chorus of six. <laughs> you know, yeah. three boys, oh, three girls. Yes. <laughs> you know? In, in, in terms of choreography, yeah. having, having a, a limited ensemble, I mean, we have a 15-member ensemble in Kiss Me Kate, and I have sort of eight dancer-dancers. And um, what's, it's, it's challenging, because you, you know, what you really want is you want to sort of fill the space and, you know, and sort of make it thrilling. But what you do with, with eight dancers is you get to know them all very individually throughout the evening. Mm -hmm. Nobody is anonymous. Mm -hmm. And that's, sort of, that's the thrill of that, that by the end of the evening, you know every person on stage, which is great. It makes auditioning hard, though, don't you think, Kat? Oh, and it's a replacement and oh, sure. nightmare. Because everybody has to, I mean, I, you know, I just saw uh, the Gypsy Run of Kiss Me, Kate, which is spectacular, and Kathleen's work is, is marvelous. And the thing is, your dancers all sing, like really sing. Mm -hmm. They all have mm -hmm. featured singing parts as well. Because they have to, because you only have an ensemble of how many? Fifteen. Fifteen. So they all have to sing. I, you know, um, in my production of Cabaret, um, our, our mm -hmm. dancer, singer, actress have to play instruments. They play. Oh, you know yes, what I mean? Right. They're in the orchestra. <laughs> yeah. So can you imagine yeah. those auditions? Oh, yeah. You know, you fall in love with somebody and then they, you know, play the clarinet like frighteningly. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> so you go, well, bye. You know, so sad. Yeah. But that, that, was really what I mean. I think that the loss of size yeah. is, you know, is chiefly regrettable. But I do think exactly what you're talking about has been one of the positive aspects that we now have dancers who can really sing, mm -hmm. singers who can really 
dance. I mean, exactly. it must have been in, in the old days that, that a choreographer <laughs> said to the singers, now stand there and don't move. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, a show girl. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, he takes me off his income That's tax. right. <laughs> <laughs> as, as, as they said in your face. <laughs> right. But, and I, I think that has been one very positive aspect. People yes. are much much better yeah. trained. Yeah, they're more versatile. Absolutely. Because they have to. Yeah. They have to. I, I mean, I just also, as, aesthetically, I happen to like the smaller casts because it does remind us that theater is a very tribal event. Mm. You know, when you talk about cabaret, when those people started playing instruments, I yeah. was, I was, I loved it. I was so happy to see people, pl you know, just reminding me that this was a story that, whatever, 15, 10 people were compelled to tell me. Right. When I see like you know tons and tons of people in really big sets mm. and all that, I just see I, I just see numbers in front of my eyes. When I, I go to the theater, I I either want to see an epic, have an epic experience, or more likely an intimate experience, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's what makes the theater special for me, and what I think it can do that a lot of other media can't do or doesn't do anymore. And we've all seen had experiences where we see a show in New York that. Uh, is done in a small theater in a very intimate way and then is a huge success and moves to a larger theater and that intimacy disappears and dissipates and suddenly the air and life is taken out of this experience. And the, the reverse side of that is that Encores is city center since we do our mission is to explore these old musicals and to do the original orchestrations uh, which call for a sort of usually 28 to 30 member orchestra uh, and then you have to have an ensemble, a singing ensemble, to match that, to match that in size and, and, and volume. And so, of course, what we're doing is we're producing musicals in a way that Broadway commercial producers can't afford to produce them. Mm -hmm. Because we mm -hmm. do have an ensemble of 18 or 19, a cast of 32 to 35, an orchestra of 30. And, but, of course, this, it's a different kind of mission. It's a different kind of event. It's a concert. So, but there, there is nothing like hearing, you know, a 14-piece string section. You know, and a, and a and a uh, and a, a singing ensemble of sixteen singing eight-part harmony on top of that. I mean, it's just you know, it's glorious. But it's not the kind of it's it's a, and so many times when we, a show is successful at encores and there are always these little sort of nibbles about you know will something happen to it in the future the way Chicago transferred and is from from encores. But of course, uh, Chicago was a much smaller show, mm -hmm. and it, you know they all come and we say, well, go ahead, you know, think you know we just sort of sit there like a. a <laughs> uh, like a you know wallflower to dance and say okay if you want it and then they all come back and they look at the numbers and they say oh we can't afford it with this size cast and this size orchestra and we say that well we're talking about a different event that's mm -hmm. not what we do you know we do something that can't be done in the commercial theater right now right how do you how do you first look at at, at your encore when you're, when you're going to do a play where do you first begin saying this is cut and this is cut and we're well, getting to the bone. And also, do how do you yeah. do your research? What, yeah. Well, we, we start with the score. I mean, that mm -hmm. really is our sort of first, <coughs> first uh, uh, mission, is to, to sort of look at the score. And we sort of think of ourselves as the kind of, you know, island of misfit toys for musicals, which is musicals <laughs> that, that everybody say, oh, you can't do that. The second act's terrible. Or, oh, that book is really dated. You can't do that show. It's like, well, yeah, we can. That's what, that's what we're here to do. We're here to take those musicals that, that shouldn't, that, that shouldn't or can't or nobody will give them a six million dollar revival on Broadway and say, well, let's, but you know what, this is a glorious score. This is, mm -hmm. this is not Cole Porter's Kiss Me Kate, this is Cole Porter's Out of This World. You know, it's, a, it's something that is not going to get a... So uh, the score is the first thing. The score is the first yeah. thing. And then, um, you know, we have, um, 
We've had wonderful playwrights who come in and sort of edit down the book. It's interesting what you're saying about, you know, compressing things. Because, of course, without a fully designed production, you know, you don't, you, you, you just, our, our sort of joke is three pages in a tune, three pages in a tune, get to the, <laughs> get to the songs. Um, and, you know, and, and we just, because we only rehearse for a week, we don't have time to sort of develop the, uh, the sort of physical humor and other things that are a part of some of these old musicals. So we kind of just, you know, tell the story and get to the next song. Are we hearing that you don't need everything that goes around a play or a musical, that if you get to the core or score or the bottom of it, that's the important thing? Musicals are different in a way that um, if the book is too fat, then there's no reason for the song, you know, because you, by the time you've gotten to the song, you, you're, you've heard all the information. The, I mean, that's why musicals are so tricky, because you have to find sort of the right balance and where a song is needed and where it's not, you know. And I, I, I think sometimes a monologue is, is more effective than a song. <laughs> not happened yet. <laughs> Although, for instance, in Chorus Line, Paul's monologue. I was that was really exactly yeah. that. Point. That was that yes. was spectacular. If right. that were a song, yeah. it wouldn't have carried the yeah. same weight, yeah. and it needed that moment at that time, you know. So it hap It's 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 a, it's a tricky situation. The whole sort of structure of a musical. You'll find that soon, Doug. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> How many of you were actors before you um, got into your present? Well, I, I certainly was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you were all. Mm -hmm. You all started out as yeah. actors? Yeah. yeah. Failed. Failed what out. happened? <laughs> 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 I, I mean, for me, I was, it was kind of similar to that. I, was in a, I graduated from the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and I couldn't get work, so I wrote a play uh, for uh, Annabella Sciorra and myself to be in. And uh, we did it. And I wrote the play, and we put it on, and Annabella loved it. And after the third performance, I was out of there. I had enjoyed <laughs> the writing, and I enjoyed the rehearsing. But once it was the actual, like, oh, now I get to pick up the cigarette. <laughs> I was like, get me out of it! <laughs> um, and because I'd written it, I was trying to come up with better lines all the time, which Annabella had no time for. <laughs> well, now, John, you, you have a, a, a long career as an actor. I yeah, know. I started out as an actor. I left grad school and went right into a professional acting job uh, regionally and worked nonstop for a good number of years. And... Uh, got, uh, came to the O'Neill uh, as an actor the first time and just totally fell in, uh, at, the time, at the time I was sort of a writer by hobby in a way, and I came to the O'Neill and totally fell in love with that process and got, left the O'Neill as an actor and, uh, you know, my, the image, although it's not literally true, is walking back into my apartment in New York and pulling out a typewriter and starting to write because I found it so exciting. I mean, I, that experience as an actor changed my life. And two years later, I submitted Agnes and was accepted as a playwright at the O'Neill. But I found, I made the transition because I found personally I was very unhappy as an actor. Uh, I just wasn't, uh, I found it emotionally a very difficult life for me to live. So when the playwriting came along, it became, uh, you know, and I said, well, I think this is the way to go. I remember the, the, t the day, the moment I got the telegram from the O'Neill saying that Agnes had been accepted. It was on May 1st, 1979. My wife called me on the phone. She said, you got this telegram from the O'Neill and your play's been accepted. And I realized at that moment that my life was totally changed from then on. Wow. I, mm -hmm. I was so aware of the fork in the road mm. and, and the, the path that I thought I was headed down suddenly became narrower and a whole other path opened up. And that's 
where I went. I think a lot of people also become actors first because it is the most visible part of theater. I mean, I always was fascinated by playwriting and playwrights. I read every play I could get my hands on. When I was a kid and I'd see a movie, I was always now who wrote that? I always wanted to see written by. I was fascinated to know that, that somebody wrote all about Eve, more than really the performances or the design or the direction of it. I said, now who wrote those words? Um, so it, I think you just become an actor first, and then you kind of do get your calling, and you do feel like this is it. And also, I mean, I also have lately just been saying, I'm, I'm a theater person. You know, I, I, that's what I do. I'm a theater person. I, I'm an artistic director. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a writer, and and also, you know, I'm, a, I'm of the theater. And, and a lot of the actors in our company are writing plays now, and yeah. I think that's great. They should. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I also this is a theory that bears absolutely no scrutiny. But um, uh, the um, but it seems to me that actors, or people who start as actors, are better writers. For one thing, they can put in the mouths mm -hmm. of their mm -hmm. people things that are sayable and speakable. Uh, or, I mean, a, a word from my sponsor, Eugene O'Neill, although he was never an actor. He grew up in a family of actors, his father and his, and his brother, and somehow, um, you know, Iceman aside, um, <laughs> uh, um, you know, they somehow are able to, uh, it's easier because you don't get these things where people are saying, that's impossible, I can't, I can't say it. But actor has had to do that. Well, I, I don't want to be rude about O'Neill, but, but I, I, I think that O'Neill, on the whole, was a really awful writer who had a kind of a remarkable and magnificent canvas. And, and I say that with a lot of respect for him, but I don't think, I think the one thing he couldn't do was write sayable dialogue. And I think that one of the reasons these that you have to have remarkable actors to really interpret O'Neill is because he's very, very hard to speak. And God knows he will say a thing four times unless he can think of a way to say it five. Um, but the, uh, but his, his, the broadness with which he with which he uh, thought is probably unparalleled, I think. The, the I, uh, truthfully, I stumbled into directing. It was as, it couldn't have been further from my mind. I was really on the whole a successful actor. Uh, I, when, when I w acted on television in England, my name was above the title. I don't think anybody knew who the hell I was, <laughs> but, uh, but I, had, I had the billing, and I was in Iceman Cometh. And I played a bleeding role. I played Parrot. And it was, interestingly enough, quite as brilliantly reviewed as the previous one that came from England. And a, a lot of people in that show went on to rather distinguished careers. But we all got crazed from the play. I used to get up in the morning at about 8.30 have a cup of coffee and go back to bed for the rest of the day. Uh, and we'd go to the theater. We went up at 6.30. Mm -hmm. I used to get the last bus from Shaftesbury Avenue at 5 minutes to 12. And I also, for me, uh, I thought I was, I looked much younger than I was <laughs> in those days. And I was, I was in my 30s playing a teenage boy. And I thought, if I don't grow up, I'm going to die. <laughs> and, and I will never grow up if I s remain an actor, because you have to be somewhat childlike. Again, I say that not disrespectfully. Mm. And I just quit. And I went 
to a drama school to Lambda, and I said, may I come and teach? They gave me some classes to do, and I didn't think I was very good at it. And then they insisted that I direct a play, and I did a play, and I went from being a very driven, very ambitious actor to a very, very unambitious director, and the work fell into my lap for many, many years. But it was nothing I ever planned. Amazing. Amazing. Nor do I miss acting. No. I think it's the lifestyle. You were yeah. saying the lifestyle. It's a very different kind of lifestyle to walk in front of a group of people and hope that they're going to say, we like you. And, you know, I, I'm embarrassed, actually. Many times when older actors come and audition for me, I feel odd about it, you know, because I have such respect for what they do, and I try to make that clear. But who's this little upstart who, who is going to tell me whether table. or not I, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had an experience. Um, I think I told you this, Kathleen. <laughs> but yeah. that where I was in, uh, uh, I was directing a production of Chicago in L.A. And, um, and Kathleen and I, we began theater um, quite young at the Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera. We were in a production of Sound of Music together. And, and um, our other yeah, sister and our was in it, too. Mara, we were three of the Bond Trap. It was just too cute for words. But anyway, um, and uh, our father in that production, Steve Arlen, fabulous actor, um, uh, came in to audition for me um, in L.A. And so I'm sitting behind the desk, and they say, and next is Steve Arlen. You know, I thought, oh, my Daddy. God. Daddy. Captain <laughs> 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 You know, and, and it was sort of overwhelming. Mm -hmm. and, I f and I didn't say a word. Can you imagine if I said, oh. remember, I was your son, and <laughs> thank <laughs> you for coming? <laughs> oh, my God. I couldn't do it. Did you give him what a card? Happened? No, I didn't oh. give him a card. Because <laughs> he, he was a wonderful singer, but the acting. <laughs> and... Um, but no, he's, he, was, he was wonderful. It was just wrong for this part. This was a sort of a, a, the lawyer, Billy Flynn. And, and, you know, I'm telling you, it was... Um, it's, it's, so but, to, but so to have that kind is, of... is that there, there are people that you love and you respect and, you, and, you, uh, and you're a fan, but, if, but your responsibility is to the show and to the production that you're doing. And, you, and, and people who are, you know, not just... but also friends. And you think, I, these are people I adore, but I have to... I can't... Uh, you have to do what is right for the part and write for the play. And it's, it's often very clear, you know, and, 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 I, and I think a lot of actors would think, but I'm, I'm an actor, I'm flexible, mm -hmm. what do you need? I can mm -hmm. give you what I need. And it's like, yeah, but you know what, this person is closer to it in, you know, who they, who mm -hmm. they really mm -hmm. are and their real sensibility. And it's very hard not to, you know, uh, not, not to, to, to disappoint people. You, you know you're always disappointing people. Mm -hmm. um, but May yeah. I ask you, I, when you're in that situation, do you tell the person who's auditioning that you don't want them? No. Because I do. I can't and do I that. have done it. I have done it forever. I could never and, do it. And over God You're knows brave, how really. many years. <laughs> no, I never. because yeah. I'll the reason I do it is I, I, I think as sweet-natured as it may be to say I don't want to hurt their feelings, they're going to go home and wait for the phone that isn't going to ring. And mm -hmm. in all of the years that I've done this, two people have said something other than thank you very much for telling me. And Until I, they shut the door. And no, then no, no, no. <laughs> and let and me tell you, and, okay. I've had, and I've had mail from people saying, thank you for letting me know. How what do you, you say? say? Yes. I say, <laughs> I'll tell you exactly what I say. I wrong. Say, wrong. Tell the doc you didn't get the no, 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 no
This is a very American thing. People say, I won't say anything that is going to look like bad news because people will not like me if, if yeah. I say it. It's very much part of the culture in this country. I've, I've, what I generally say is, thank you very, very much for coming in. You are extremely talented, and I enjoyed what you did very much. However, it is not going to work out this time for the following reasons, and I hope oh, you can specifically work. said oh, yes. you're and too I, something. I, I, I hope, we, you're too I hope short. we can work together in the future. And they go out saying that's thank actually, you. That's actually and pretty classy. It's yeah, much easier. It's yeah. much easier because you don't have to. Did I hurt their feelings? Was I tactful? It's a much much. I'll tell you what, what Bob Fosse used to do that was that really actually was painful. And is in a group of people. See, dancers audition in a group. Mm -hmm. Yes, so I there's, know. You know. Yes. So there's 40 people there, and he would go around and say, thank you very much, instead of in, in, in specifically to them and why they weren't right for it. Uh -huh. And it's embarrassing in front of your, your well, you know, yeah, your people that you know. It's, I, just, you know I just found that uh, since I had success as a playwright and, and as an artistic director, I, I, people say, oh, well, now that you're successful, what's the difference? The difference is I say, I'm sorry all day long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Mm -hmm. And that's what you should be. I'm sorry it's not going to work out. You're not right for this. I'm sorry we can't do that play. It's too big. I'm sorry we can't. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. And, and the it's tough the first year. <laughs> You know, <laughs> because you actually are sorry, <laughs> and it's very painful, and you're like, oh, why? I can't. And then you're just like, I'm sorry, and, right. and, it's, and it's fine, and it is fine. And know that, you know, we are sensitive to, to the rejection, we're, because we're getting rejected, too, all yeah. the time. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm having plays dangled in front of me. I go to reach for it, and they pull it from me. Happens mm -hmm. all the time. Actors drop out of my plays. Actors mm -hmm. decide to do some, a made-for-TV movie instead of my play. So I'm there too. In a way, it's a business of I'm sorry's. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. the sad part of this business. Oh. Oh, how do you uh, go from, the, the, we've, we've talked, Vivian mentions of going from acting to directing, and that seems to me like a logical progression or step in whatever direction one wants to be. Uh, but how do you go from acting to choreography? How, what, rather than directing, what well, inspires I think, I mean, and well, informs Ra that? Well, Robbie and I sort of both kind of somewhat made the same progression yes. in that we both started off as dancers, performers, dancing in the ensemble. Robbie danced in the, uh, you know, four or five Broadway shows. And then, but we, we both were sort of always interested in what was going on in the rest of the room. You know, sort of, excuse me, aren't we all supposed to be doing this, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. And, um, and we both started becoming uh, dance captains. Um, you know, because the choreographers and directors would realize that we sort of were more aware of what, what the whole picture and what the whole uh, play was about. And as a dance captain, you know, you're, once the show is open and, and running, you're in charge of maintaining the choreography, teaching replacements, teaching the understudies, and that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and Robbie became an assistant choreographer to Graziella Danielle. Mm -hmm. And then when he went off on his own and started choreographing, I became an assistant to Robbie. And uh, so all of a sudden, you know, I was still auditioning and kind of doing ensemble stuff. And then Robbie would call and say, hey, I just got called to go to, you know, Kiss the Spider Woman with Hal Prince and Cheetah Rivera. Want to come? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it sounds like how, fun. Okay, so what's your training to become a dancer to get to choreography and be dance camp? How were you trained? What, um, what, were you trained in ballet? Were you trained Mario in Mario Melodia School of Dance in Pittsburgh. <laughs> well, <laughs> tell me, okay, so uh, tell us about that. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, I mean, I was too sort of mortified to go to dance class, so <laughs> Kathleen actually used to teach me in the basement of our house <laughs> because it was just too, you know, weird for a, a guy to go to dance class. I just couldn't, you know, the whole dance belt thing was really frightening. You know, that whole world. <laughs> so, um, but Kathleen started taking class. I started taking ballet first. Ballet first. And in Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh. In, and mm -hmm. tap. He started kind of late. I didn't start dancing until I was 13. 13. Hmm. And then I started, t t I started taking ballet and tap. I was teaching Robbie steps. And then a couple years later, you started taking jazz class. Yeah, about, I think I was about 16. I, it yeah, was very late. Yeah, 16. Wow. It was very late. And then he started yeah, teaching amazing. me jazz steps. So, I, yeah, I started teaching jazz. You didn't take jazz. Mm -mm. That was the cool first. thing to take. It was sort of the 70s, yeah. and it was like, you know, I was like John Travolta in the class. Jazz is manly and ballet. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. No, it was that point <laughs> thing. Yeah. For all I could flex yeah. everywhere, but the point was to... But, you know, for all the relatives and for all the aunts, you know, they, they, Robbie was like, dance like John Travolta, dance like John Travolta. Yeah. You know? It was about that whole thing, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it was and a natural so. thing, and, we, and, and very quickly... Um, um, both of us were in the advanced class, and you know we didn't come from a, 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 a dance background in any way, shape, or form. But it was just natural to both of us, and we, you know, I think I was in the advanced jazz class in like three weeks yeah. or something. Yeah. I mean, it was just a natural thing that happened to both of us. Mm -hmm. You know, our parents are both in education. And from Pittsburgh to Pittsburgh, I actually went to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, and the musical theater department. Mm -hmm. So then I sort of had formal acting training and dance training and voice training. Mm -hmm. And Kathleen went to Smith College and actually um, was, you were in the, the English department. Yeah, I was, in the, I was a, not a dance major, but one of the reasons I went was Jem Z. DeLapp, who was uh, one of Angus DeMille's uh, assistants and, and, and lead dancers, was teaching there. And it was great because I learned ballet and specifically musical theater dance. I mean, we would learn original Jerome Robbins and Agnes DeMille choreography and that kind of thing. And we would have classes in musical theater choreography. She was so Dream Louise and Dream Laurie. Yeah, and yeah all we her, did all know. these things as in dance <laughs> concerts, In the original yeah. productions, yeah. yeah. That's great. Hasn't dance theater become, in a certain sense, formalized? There's something that I sometimes expect always to see in a Broadway show, the certain movements. And, and I was wondering how we're coming to the 21st century here. Is there somewhere else for dance? Theater, theater dance to go? Well, Blue I think the, the success of uh, Susan Stroman's Contact that just opened, which mm -hmm. I haven't seen yet, but, you know, it's a whole dance theater conceived mm -hmm. piece that, um, you know, that dances from beginning to end. And, and what Graziella's, Danielle, her sort of theater mm -hmm. dance pieces when, uh, uh, with uh, um, uh, Dangerous Chronicles Games and Chronicles of Death Foretold, told, you know, uh, very sort of How interesting How would you pieces. describe this new style. I just, I, I just want to say that musical theater is a style unto mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. it, is, it, is an, it is a form. It is an art form. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just find it has been a delight for me to write a book of a musical comedy and get to know all the rules and read everything everyone's written on it. And I, I had studied it uh, with, at, uh, at ASCAP in the workshops. And it's just a great thing to, to know that this is our form. So, yeah, I mean, there are in, in terms of choreography, there are, you know, certain steps that you may see over and over again, but they, they come out of an affectionate knowing of it. And, and I mean, we haven't seen a dream ballet in a musical <laughs> for a while. Yeah. And those were pretty standard through yeah. the 40s and 50s was yes. that dream ballet. But it's yeah. very interesting. You just said musical comedy. Which is well, what it was. It was, in yeah. the, and that's what I'm writing. But it's become and more. And now you're saying musical yeah. theater, yeah. which is yes. what it's becoming, yeah. and, and well, that's what I, I, was I talking about. It, it has become much more integrated because instead of the dream ballet, the characters dance and sing within the piece, and somebody mm -hmm. doesn't take over for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, I even think in 
in Oklahoma in London that the dream mm -hmm. the Laurie and the Curly mm -hmm. dance themselves mm -hmm. in their in their mm -hmm. ballet I mean and that's a revival of an mm -hmm. old piece but I think um, I hope that dance has become more integrated in that way so that the characters themselves can dance and it's not like the people leaving the dancers come on. I mean, it's, it's, it's much more integrated that way. I think that's a big I change. there's a new form of tap dancing, I mean, that is coming in. You know, tap, I mean, in a kind well, of... Well, Savion Glover sort of right. brought, and, and Gregory Hines, right. their sort of style of, of, of tap dancing is sort of, With you know... Sound it's not, on your well, feet. Yeah. It's about sound. It's, it's more about sound than about I style. think it's about time for me to interject. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that Savion Glover never tapped a step in his life until he did the tap and dance kid. Yes. Right. And he was taught yes. everything by Danny Daniels and by Danny's son. Yes. And that has never been credited, and I want to put set the record straight How here and now. How do you know now. that? Because I directed it. Where do you get off? Right. We were setting you up, Vivian. And I thought he was a wonderful talent, and I think he still is. But credit should yes. go where it's due. Well, now, yeah. go farther with it, because that is, uh, I was kidding, we were setting you up for you to right. leap in yes. with that. Right. But, but uh, uh, when, when he came to you, I mean, he came out of nowhere, basically, right? All, of the, all of the children who danced in the Tap Dance Kid, yes. including the first one, Alfonso, he had never tapped in his life. And, uh, and, Hinton, they, and Hinton wasn't a great tap Hinton dancer. Hinton had never tapped. No. Hinton mm. had never tapped. Uh, but Hinton was not, in years anyway, a child. Um, <laughs> the, the, uh, Ouch. <laughs> but what, what happened was they came in, they sang, they read, and then Danny worked with them. He said, very well coordinated. We'll put him in school for three months. And oh. we had three children. Uh, one was Jimmy, he was later Savion's understudy in Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk. Mm -hmm. He had done a bit, of, a, a bit of tap. Alfonso had never tapped, and there was a third kid who had never tapped. And Danny and DJ Gianni, Danny's son, they went every day to school. And finally, we made Alfonso the first. Uh, Jimmy, whatever his name was, was the second, and he's actually on the, um, on, the, on the show album, and Savion was the third. And Savion was exactly the same. Danny said, he's very coordinated. He, we will be able to teach him. And he was a genius. Mm -hmm. Amazing. You yeah. seem an unlikely choice, perhaps, to have directed that. What was your well, background I, in tap the, or music? I'll tell you, I, uh, I respond very strongly to family plays. And by, and uh, family, you know, Hamlet is a family play, so is that the salesman, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. And, and I, thought, I thought there was a genuinely revolutionary idea in the tap dance kid. Now, I have to say that what happened on Broadway, I was not very happy with by comparison to what we got in the workshop. But there was a revolutionary idea about the tap dance kid in that you had a black family that were, uh, you know, he, the father was probably a liberal Republican. Uh, and they were not living next door to people who didn't want them. They were affluent, and it was about them struggling to, uh, 
make their way in the world, and I didn't think that had ever been done with, uh, with, with a black family in the theater that I had ever seen, and that's what I responded to very strongly. I was also very taken with the, 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 the father's point of view, where he said at one point, we didn't get off the plantation till we stopped dancing and started doing. And I thought that was, you know, he was the villain of the piece, but I also thought he was making sense from his point of view and wanting to have the struggle for the children. Incidentally, uh, at one point, uh, th that character had a lot of songs. And when I came in, I begged them to cut all of his numbers, except for the one which was not yet written, that, if you remember it, seven or eight minute uh, kind of monologue song. And I said, because you cannot have him being so uptight about music and musicals when he's singing all the time. <laughs> because the act of singing is itself so joyous, mm -hmm. it will not make any sense. But I mean, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I was very glad to have done the workshop. And I regretted, finally, the Broadway production. And when I got the Tony nomination, I was, had to be held down by my friends because I wanted to write the committee and ask them not to put my name on the ballot. I didn't think it reflected my work. Hmm. Yeah. Does that happen often? People? Not to me. No. <laughs> it, it, it has never happened before. to me before, and it will never happen again. But do they? I mean, there are times when you when you've mm -hmm. done a production that, you know, for some reason you're not happy fully with how it went, and sometimes that has to do with the producers and how strong they are. And if when they're very strong, sometimes they say it must be this way. Or as collaborators, you know, Kathleen and I are choreographers. You work with a director who sees something very specifically, and you would have done it differently. So, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's always a compromise. It's always negotiation. I don't have a problem with strong producers. I have a real problem with weak producers uh -huh. because they don't know that mm -hmm. they're weak. Mm -hmm. unless, and unless they're weak and they pretend they're strong. That's keep wanting to have input. Yeah. 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 But isn't that what's happening so much that something is wonderfully done either in a workshop or in a small theater? Mm -hmm. And then when it's transferred, it loses mm. something that it had there. It has nothing to do with where it's at, whether it's Broadway or off-Broadway. It's where it's in mm. and, and taking it away from what it originally was mm. and enlarging yeah. it yeah. is what takes away from what you saw that was so Broadway good. nowadays has become more and more a, a sort of uh, almost like a roadhouse or the... the, the, the <laughs> They sort, of, they sort of, exactly. <laughs> they, you sort of take Branson, Branson. <laughs> take something that's already achieved its uh, its success, or a, it's as good as it's going to get in theory, and then they move it to into a Broadway house, which may or may not be good. But it's no longer uh, the de play development process, part of the play development process that it used to be. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there's a, there's almost a kind of contradiction here, which is interesting and frustrating. The producers want um, maybe the, the, the one set, seven characters, uh, on one hand. On the other hand, uh, you have to have, in order to make it work economically, a huge theater. Uh, 
so that economically you can get enough people. So you've got a small, one set, small cast into, a, into Yankee Stadium uh, well, and that's, that's try to be intimate at the same time, you know. But also, uh, I, if, if I write seven characters in one set, it's not just because I want a Broadway production, because I actually don't want a Broadway production mm -hmm. at this point in my life, really. I just find the idea kind of irritating. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I like doing it off-Broadway or off-off-Broadway. Um, and that's the economics of putting the show on. And also, I want a life of the play. I want it to be done in regional theaters. And talk about college productions, there's also a whole movement in, in colleges across the country where students do their, directing students do their production in their senior year, and they're picking plays that they can do on the second stage, a little mm -hmm. black box theater in Missouri. And I want my play to happen that way. I want people to, I want people to, I want to get the word out. I want people to be hearing that stuff. So I, that's what I choose to do. But yes, of course, the dream would be, you know, a two-hander two at the Ford Center. <laughs> I mean, that's like, <laughs> you produce just these, like, big well, dollar signs for pupils on that. Well, that's that statement that you like to do your face, you're off Broadway. Um, I don't, at this point, uh, I don't know what a Broadway play is. Um, as a writer, as, an, as a young, uh, youngish, <laughs> American writer, I don't know what an American play would be for me. I don't see it as economically or, or what the audience is. I, I don't see it yet. It hasn't happened for me yet. What kind of an audience is different off-Broadway than Broadway or Seattle? Oh, God. Oh, I hear the euphemisms fly. Um, <laughs> I find that uh, an just by saying the word off-Broadway, and we're actually off, I'm actually off-off-Broadway. Okay. Our country club is right now. And B's moved to off-Broadway. Um, we aspire to most people's basements. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, most people, I, I, my hope is to work with people who are slumming. Um, is that I have no, the audiences, the way the audiences are different is they are adventurous. It has nothing to do with age which I know some playwrights my age have been slamming a lot of older audiences in the press, and I have to protest that. I don't think it has to do with age. It has to do with an adventurous spirit. I think that some theater companies in New York are nurturing rude audiences, and that's unfortunate. Um, you have to train an audience. <laughs> as a, when you have subscribers, you actually are somewhat have to train them, like what is acceptable and what's not acceptable. Cell phones in a play is not acceptable. <laughs> it's not. Talking during a show isn't acceptable. And you have to kind of, you know, I'm s it's, it's like a real problem. I mean, the cell phone in a theater audience today is just a modern equivalent of the ice in the glass. Oh, completely. You know. Come through. But I, I, I'm saying, but I'm saying it's, I know, and the it's ice wrapper. in the glass, and it's candy wrapper, and it's all that stuff, yeah. but it's also about you want to find people who are there for that. Right. They're not there to kill time <laughs> before they go to bed that night. Well, I, I, I'm, I must say, uh, la just last spring, I was at a, at a theater uh, where, where the, obviously the cell phone rang. That was bad enough, but then the person went and picked it up and started talking. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it didn't no, turn it off. No, just no, carried it. No. Oh, no. no. I, I, there was a, uh, and, it's no. not, and it's not like, oh, that rube. Uh, a very important Broadway producer uh, name. Name. We'll find name. out later. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Wait till the camera And Hollywood producer, okay, <laughs> short list, um, <laughs> went to see June Moon at the Ohio Theater when we did it and took a call 
it was just a tiny theater, a theater about the size <laughs> of this, this stage, <laughs> tiny, tiny theater, took a cell phone call in the middle of the first I'm going to talk to Scott Rudin oh. about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but he did do yes. that. And I thought that was so unbelievable. I thought the only thing that would have been better is if he'd gone like this, the action. Shh! <laughs> but he took the call, which I thought was kind of great. And, and, and it's, I mean, it's not oh. just, Now, but you you're know. talking about the exceptions. I don't think that there is a difference today between an off-Broadway audience and a theater audience because their price of tickets are getting as high in off-Broadway as it is almost per Well, there is, I mean, there's a real transference happening in that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I just know that... Um, the, I think, uh, God, I'm trying to be so nice here. Um, it's, it's also, it. you're failing, you're yeah. failing. <laughs> All right, what it comes down to is, I want to create theater. I want to create theater without a lot of pressure, mm -hmm. without a lot of, of, I don't mind a fight as long as it's about a play. I don't want to fight about something stupid like poster size or billing or, or theater locate or what, you know, what's that. I, wanna, I just want to do the play. I want to do the play and get mm -hmm. it right and get people to come see it. And that's, that's, that's possible for me um, because of the budget. It's a smaller budget. If I were on a show, what's, what's a Broadway show cost? cost now? A million dollars? Oh, more. 1.5? Two? Keep going. Three? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, play. No, no, play. Right. About one and a half. What did I have? It's average, I that think. Is, that's yeah. a lot of money yeah. for somebody to shell out. And they, by God, if you're putting that money, you better tell me what you don't like. But do you think we're particularly far away from the day when there will be no plays done on Broadway and only musicals will be done on Broadway, and plays will be done exclusively off-Broadway, other than the imports from the Royal National or, yeah. or Shakespeare mm -hmm. Company. Because I, I think we're actually there. I think we're And there. I don't yeah. think that's a bad thing at all. No, I, I, I really have no problem. I mean, I think what's happened is that, I mean, there is a, a shortage of yeah. Broadway theaters, but there's also a shortage of off-Broadway theaters A right tremendous now. shortage. Like, we're, there are, I've yes. actually talked to, when, when a country club got these really great reviews, we got some producers saying we'd like to move it, and they called around to the theaters, and the promenade said we have seven people waiting. Right, mm. seven different mm. shows waiting mm. for this theater. Problem this is, will you come know. about when playwrights like this young man says, "I want to do off Broadway and off Broadway and not Broadway." That you've got to do a play is. for whatever audience you can possibly reach and not right. say Broadway or off-Broadway. Well, I, I don't... And, and that's I, I know that there would be a tremendous... The, the watch, yeah. watch my next play, will be on Broadway. But that's, <laughs> I'm just saying, like, as the, as so far, I said I don't know what it is. At this <laughs> point in my life, I'm not going to lie to you and say, yeah, that's my goal and that's my dream, that's my alpha, my omega. My, my dream was always to have plays done in New York, and I'm doing that. And I'm very happy with my life now. Now, if something were to come along and it did have the reviews and it did have the story and I said, you know, this is a really, this could happen on Broadway and make it, I would say go for it. But it's not, it, without a star, without a big run on the West End, without all this yeah. stuff. It's when, I, when I saw Closer, a play that mm. I thought was really wonderful. Yes, yeah, a wonderful uh, it play. It made me mm. quite sad at the end because I thought if this exact play had been written by an American playwright, mm. it would not be on Broadway at this I moment agree would be off that, Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Why? Uh, because I think um, I think critically, the uh, it came into Broadway with the raves already written from London. Mm -hmm. uh, the equivalent of that in America would be, what, regional, possibly having started off Broadway. And those, you can have all the 
regional raves in the world, and it's not going to, they're almost going to work against you critically on yeah. Broadway. I, I mean, I think it has critics, a lot to do with tickets, don't you think? I mean, people spend, they're going to spend that kind of money, and it has to be an event, it has to be a proven yeah. quantity of some kind. And so yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out to dinner at Orso's, and then I'm going to go see the show. <laughs> And I'm go that, that, that's going to be a $300 night mm -hmm. for me. Babysit it. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's a $300 evening. So should I take the chance on a play that I don't know about, especially a play? Because in a musical, in a funny way, you feel like you're going to get your money's worth. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 it's a spectacle, I guess. I don't know. It's so bizarre, but it's true. Mm -hmm. you, you know, because it's, it's less about imagination in a funny way and more about spectacle, you know, they assume or people assume. And, and so I, I, that's the problem, I think. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible thing. I think that if Closer had been done, and I agree, I, th I think it's a fine play. I think if it had been done off-Broadway, it would still be running. Yeah. That could be. I, I, yes, I and mean, I'm not saying yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. but I think the difference that we're talking about is Broadway and off-Broadway. Right. And mm -hmm. as a perceived goal for any end goal for a play, where's, where does a play want to end up? I mean, how, how certainly traditionally, right. right about 17 months. That's, that's But remarkable. traditionally, uh, we're brought up in this country believing that Broadway is the end all and be all. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and in reality, of course, as theater professionals, we've realized rather quickly it's not that at all. It has become a bus and truck stop, I think, for, 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 the, for the most part. Today. I mean, it's also just. Yeah. Uh, you kind of, I think, you know, when, when his Bees and Honey John got the reviews it got, there was, you do sit in a big round table with advertising people and producers, and they say, these are the theaters that are available, which they used to do back then, two years ago. <laughs> now they just go, we're in line. Um, you know, uh, but, and, You're and all they, in the theater, though. Yeah. You're all working in the yeah. theater, yeah. working for the theater. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you sit there, and they, and they go, uh, and they say, we've got the the Golden, and you've got the Lucille Lortel. And everyone had a, an hour discussion, and it was decided the Lucille Lortel, just because we wanted the play to have a nice long run, nice long run with an unknown actress, mm -hmm. unknown to most people. And that, that's what we chose well, to do. You know, Keep the integrity of the yeah. piece. Yeah. There, there is a, there's a, uh, also, uh, that a lot of us remember, there's a whole different breed of producers we talk about, too. And I think that has to be uh, uh, affected. Um, and there are some of us who remember there are a lot of the old-time producers who you might not want your uh, son or daughter to marry one. Uh, they were not what you'd call terrific, uh, he, you know, um, model human being citizens, but they were brilliant in terms of they, could, uh, they were strong. They knew what they wanted. Now, a lot of them, and this is, again, overstating it, seem to be, uh, have made a lot of money somewhere else and do not have the strength or the, uh, perhaps, the perception. The entrepreneurs. Yeah. That's what they are chiefly. Yeah. Or groups of people. You exactly. see producers, there's like yes, seven or eight people. Talk I've about seven it. actors, there's that, seven producers. That poor director <laughs> and or choreographer is going to have notes from 15 people. <laughs> <laughs> that, in, and the wives yeah. and husbands of 15 people. Right. <laughs> and, and the boyfriends and girlfriends of the wives. <laughs> I tell the, uh, when Tab Dance Kid was in preview, I went there one night and I thought, what the hell is that? They changed all the crockery on the breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> that was going to make the show work. <laughs> well, I think I think I'd, uh, there is something which is happening, which is not about you know a group of fifteen producers. Now it's now corporations mm -hmm. are getting involved because there is they see this Broadway as a commodity. This is something. 
that you get the T-shirt, you get the hat, you sell it. So it is a very interesting to do. I don't know if anyone's dealing with the corporation now. Well, it's, recently, it's funny because I just this summer I did a, a choreographed a workshop production of a musical called The Susical, which is um, uh, by uh, Steve Flaherty and Lynn Aarons, who wrote Ragtime and Frank Lottie really directed, and it was really fun. And um, we started off when I first got the call. It was from Livent saying, this is happening in this workshop, and would you choreograph it? And yes, I'd be very interested. Thank you. And then, you know, it was in the spring and the summer, and live events kind of fading away before <laughs> our eyes. And in, literally, in the middle of our workshop is when Pace took over. So all of a sudden, we had sort of new parents in the middle of the workshop. But the oddest thing is, of course, for a workshop, it didn't affect us in the least. You know, we're still, it's still just the, the cast and the director and the authors and me in a room creating this. Now, you know, what the future life will be, you know, is now in the hands of Pace. But, <laughs> but in a way... the White House or something. <laughs> <laughs> just like. But does that affect what you're doing? No, it doesn't affect the work at all. I mean, so I think that it's, you it's you're in a room creating. So that you continue doing what you have been hired yeah. to do and, and your expertise. Yeah, I mean, through. in a way, I mean, I, I worked uh, at the drama department. Doug hired me to choreograph a thousands cheer um, a year ago. And it was really fun and the, and the, because the motives were pure. I mean, it was sort of this group of people. I mean, we had this amazing cast, and Chris Ashley directed, and we had this great group of people. And it was so much fun because the motives were absolutely pure. There was nothing. We were all in the room because we wanted to work with each other, and we wanted to work on this piece. And there was no expectation of, I'm going to do this job because it's going to, I can buy a house in the country if it runs for a year. I mean, there was not that sort of feeling at all. It was only, the, o the only motive to be there was because the material and the people. And it was great. And, and, it, was, and it was successful. And we actually had some sort of, there was talk yeah. of, will there be a future life? And we said, you know what? If it, uh, we had a cast who was going on to other things, and we'd have to replace them, and we'd have to change it. And we said, you know, we like, we don't want to let anybody else in our clubhouse. We had a great <laughs> little clubhouse, and we want to, you know, we, we want to just leave it at that. If you had your brothers in the musical theater, which is the most difficult to approach on this because of budgets and everything, how would you do it, you, Rob? What would you Well, you know, the ideal thing is to have... Uh, a producer, see, what, I, what I feel sad about is that people running around trying to get their musicals produced and there's not a person who sort of commissions a, a, and says, mm -hmm. you know what, uh, you're going to write and you're going mm -hmm. to do mm -hmm. the music and, and you're going to do the lyrics mm -hmm. and you're going you're gonna to direct and you're going to choreograph and I'm putting this team together and that's going to happen. And I, that's what I miss. I mean, uh, both Kathleen and I worked with Garth Drabinsky and, you know, he had faults, clearly, but he also was tr in that sort of old-fashioned way trying to be the David Merrick or mm -hmm. the Stuart Ostro and that kind of person who would put it together. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, I miss that kind of uh, father or, you know, figure, mother figure who says, I'm going to create this world and this is the, a great team because what happens now is um, that's why revivals are done so often too because it's hard to get people together in a funny way, you know. And um, so th that's what I miss, that kind of... But I, I would also, I would disagree with you, Isabel, that the, um, if you change producers in midstream, it's bound to affect the work. It's like if you're on board ship, one day you have one kind of turbulence, another day you have another kind of turbulence. It's going to affect the way you walk on the deck to use a really mixed metaphor. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but, uh, but, but I think it does, it does make a difference. I don't think any producer should uh, lie down dead and say, get on with it. No. But they should, they should be able, as Rob was saying, to create an atmosphere in which it is 
possible to do the work right. I mean, I find that a lot of the time these days, the most restful part of my job is directing. And that should be the yeah. most difficult <laughs> and the most stressful in a way. Now it's the most peaceful. It's the meetings I dread. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I mean, to be a choreographer in a Broadway musical these days, you're the first to go. I mean, it's like That's musical true. chairs with choreographers oh. these no, days. No, it's usually the know? costume design. <laughs> <laughs> if, the, if the sets and the set dressing. If, no, if the sets don't move right. The costume designer. <laughs> 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 when did we start having choreographer director in musicals? Um, there had been a great division yeah. for years. I think well, you know. I mean, the, the rich tradition of, of yeah. clearly of Bob Fosse, Jerome Robbins, mm -hmm. Gower Jerome Champion, Robbins, Gower Champion, that, yeah. Michael Bennett. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gower Champion, of course. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, Agnes DeMille directed a few musicals, but we know her, you know, mainly as a choreographer. Not right. well. <laughs> but you know what? I'll tell you something. I just finished um, directing and choreographing this production of Annie that's going to be on television. And, November uh, 7th, ABC 7. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Thank Kathleen. You. Thank you for that. Love you for that. This will have aired way past this. Anyway, um, but I'll tell you, the one great thing about directing and choreographing, if, if, if it's something that you enjoy doing or, or, or know how to do or have, you know, affinity for, is um, that is the sort of single vision. I mean, I love collaborating, and I've done it many, many times, and 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 and, and love it. But I, it's great to have the vision, the whole vision. So you're not asking somebody, "How do I get into this song and out of this song?" And and uh, yes, where I'll lend and you'll take over. Right, and all that exactly. Kind of thing. I mean, the best collaborations are when you can't obviously tell where the seams are, and that's happened, I'd say, a few times in my life where I've had a great collaborator. You know, name them. Hmm. Sam Mendes and I worked beautifully together mm -hmm. I, I, on Cabaret, I thought. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, was a, it was a great experience. Um, and uh, Kathleen assisted me on She Loves Me with, and Scott Ellis and I worked on that and Kathleen. Mm -hmm. And that felt very collaborative. And, you know, those, because what happens is the great directors that I've worked with, the best idea in the room wins. You know, mm -hmm. as opposed right. to that, you know, mm -hmm. the egos are sort of checked at the door, I find, and what everybody speaks and everybody listens. And yes, of course, the director makes the final decision as to where you're heading. But I find that it's the, it's, that's a great collaborator, a great leader, somebody who can let the information happen and not sort of squelch it or bring an ego into the room and push things away. And, uh, so those, are, those have been wonderful collaborators. And Jack O'Brien in Damn Yankees mm -hmm. loved working with the, Jack. The other side of that, we've talked about this because Robbie's been directing now for a while, and I sort of just started, I directed something at Encores uh, last year, and we said that as a choreographer, you know, you're, you, you have a huge responsibility, but you're not in the direct line of fire. And yet you can kind of sit back there and go, well, you know, somebody better do something about that costume. <laughs> you know, she's, is he really going to let her do that on stage? And then, you know, when you're the director, you go, oh, I guess that'd be my job. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm the one who wants to I say that. I better get up and do you that. You go, oh, well, not my yes. department. I don't want to get it's into that. It's lonelier. It's lonelier. <laughs> let me say something which probably sounds a bit insensitive, but uh, I will declare that I'm unable to stage a number called I'm sitting in a swing and singing as I swing. I, I, cannot, I cannot choreograph. I don't believe that No, for a it's moment. true. It's true, and I don't try. But by the same token, there are some choreographers who are thoroughly untrained about directing who say, I can do it. 
and get very stroppy if you sort of say, I don't think this is what you yeah. should be doing. Now, the reverse of that is if I go up to somebody, I say, you know, I've never done this, but I feel a tap number in my brain and in my toes. Please let me do it. Can you dance? No. <laughs> I would be committed for doing that, but certain <laughs> individuals do get away with the reverse, and I don't understand it. Yes, I And I, I don't know why there are egos that mm -hmm. need to collide like that. I think choreographers know how to move a musical, like, you know, but that doesn't mean they know how to work with character and with book and know, understand the complexities of what that involves. And I think, I know, for instance, Bob Fosse studied with Sandy Meisner to really understand what and an actor was. And he was a wonderful director. And he worked yes, very he hard worked. at it. And, yes. I think that, and, and, and I think, you know, that's, I come from a theater background, theater training, um, and that's, it's, it's not necessarily that, you know, I'm continuing to grow as a director as well. It's, it's, it's something that not everybody does well. And um, it takes a lot of work and skill. Quickly stop for one minute, and, and we're going to come back to what we're talking about and what it is to work in the theater from your, all of your backgrounds. And we're just going to take a quick minute to stretch and move around and then come back and continue <laughs> with this discussion because there are a lot of questions that have to be answered here. You might think that you've answered all of them, but not by This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. Welcome back to the American Theatre Wing Seminar on Working in the Theatre. Before we return to this gifted panelist, I would like to point out to you that the Wing is more than a sponsor of seminars and more than our famous Tony Awards, which is given for excellence in the theatre. We are an organization whose year-round programs are dedicated to serving the theatre and the community with the goal of developing new audiences. And to achieve that goal, we have created audience development programs for students, like uh, Introduction to Broadway, which began seven years ago and has enabled almost 80,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show, and for many of them, for the very first time. And through the, our Theater in School program, we have professionals like these on our seminar panels that go directly into classrooms to work with and talk to students about working in the theater. In addition, we have a hospital program, which dates back to World War II and our legendary stage door canteens. Today's version of the program brings talent from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and the cabaret world to entertain patients in hospitals, senior day and nursing facilities, aid service organizations, and child care and hospice facilities in the New York area, bringing the magic of theater to those who cannot get to the theater themselves. We are proud of the work we do and are delighted with that wonderful working relationship we have with the theatrical community. We're grateful to our members and to everyone who makes possible all that the American Theater Wing 
does. Now, having said that, let's get back to our seminar on working in the theater. And I'd like to start part two with my question to the panel, which is really not so much a question as a discussion. I want to know the role of the playwright and the director. How do you work that out at the beginning of your production? Where do you start and where does it go from there? And who has the final word on this? Do you like to start? The ideal relationship, I think, is a marriage. It's, uh, I just had a wonderful experience working with Chris Ashley, which I know Doug, a director that Doug has just worked with. And what was great for me about working with Chris is that both of us quickly reached a point where I, I, we certainly were able to read each other's minds. I found it that in auditions we uh, responded positively and negatively in almost exactly the same way to uh, actors who would come in and audition for us. And we thought very much along the same lines in, uh, in working in the piece and really blended beautifully. Uh, I've also had nightmarish experiences with directors uh, w where the ego situation was the uh, you know, the, the, the be-all and end-all of this director's <laughs> being, you know. I'm the boss and uh, uh, I'm, the, I'm the artiste and mm -hmm. no one dare uh, question my taste. Mm -hmm. and, and there are playwrights I hear tell of that are the same way. <laughs> yeah, there are. There are. I mean, there's, there's one playwright whose catchphrase is, that's written in stone. But that's mm. different from in film, where they change well, the words every... Well, you've done that. You're, and they you're just below highway <laughs> sniper. <laughs> <laughs> because the words don't mean anything. Well, that's about ownership, I think, yeah. too. Oh, the fact that... But uh, you own your play. I own the play. I don't own my screenplay or my teleplays. Right. So Do you ever want to get up and direct a piece that you're, you think is being done Sometimes mid-scene. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. I mean, I, I understand the the cohesiveness that some uh, playwrights talk about. But I like, I personally like, I like collaboration. It's why I chose to be a playwright. If I wanted, you know, to just be in total control, I would write a novel. You know, that would be total control. Um, but I like having, s write something, I mean, as a playwright, you write something, you own it, that's yours. Now, the beauty part is, is in order for it to happen, you've got to shut up and listen to other people and work with them. And in a weird way, though you do say, this is mine and I own it, you kind of have to say, go. And, and let, me, let me be there to inform you of what, what I was trying for. And you tell me what you're going for. And you just keep talking. Talk, 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 talk. What if you feel they're ruining it, completely ruining your piece? Well, I find that often when I'm in the rehearsal process, I'm <coughs> I'm blinded to some, to some degree about whether things are going down the right path or the wrong path. Because I find that collaboration for me often is about just totally opening my mind as much as possible to the input that I'm being given from other people. And uh, I have to trust in my own instincts when somebody says something that I think, whoa, this is totally off base uh, and wrong. But I've been in situations with a director that uh, takes the show down a certain path, and it's a while before it takes me to realize what has been done and what's gone wrong here. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's very scary, but I find that's kind of the hazard of the game, in a way. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it, how can you be op totally open and 
not be vulnerable on occasion to, uh, you know, sideswipes. What's your answer? Well, I think what what both John and Doug have described is the is absolutely ideal and 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 correct situation for a director and a and a, and a writer to be in. Um, at Hampstead, where we chiefly did new plays. Uh, we did an occasional revival, but that was a, a new play theater. I wrote into the contract with the, uh, with the authors that they had the absolute forever right to be at every single rehearsal if they so desired, provided they respected the etiquette of the rehearsal procedure. What I think sometimes happens that is not a good idea. I think sometimes writers stay at the rehearsal a little too long. No, I don't mean about all day, but there should be a period at which you go away because if you stay there too uh, vividly, if you like, you can begin to mistake the attempt of something with the results. Yeah, you, you and it's very useful to have you, you come back and say, this isn't, oh, well, I'm trying to do, well, you may be trying to do that, but you're not achieving it. I have found in my own experience, usually, the more gifted the writer, the easier they are to work with. Um, I may be the only person left alive who directed Noel Coward in his own plays. And I directed the last plays he, he wrote. And it was absolutely astonishing. Um, one day I said to him in rehearsal of a certain play, you know, this is really too long. He said, yeah, I know it is. Please take it home and cut it for me. I said, what? <laughs> he said, I am far too close to it to be able to do that adequately. You mm. are more detached. You will do it better. I cut 25 minutes out of the play. And within 10 minutes, we had reached agreement or disagreement on all of the points. He was not so easy to direct as an actor, <coughs> but he was the easiest writer I ever worked with. I found when I was working um, on Little Me, um, I couldn't believe it, but Neil Simon came and sat in every rehearsal all day long. Oh, really? And it was as if he were a first-time writer. And the great thing about Neil is if it doesn't work, he'll rewrite it in two seconds. His, when, when something's going wrong in a scene, even if it was something that I had done or it's something that an actor had done, he would start writing. <laughs> because he wants to please and he wants, and he's, you know, I guess it comes from his television roots or something, but there's something, he just wants to rewrite it and here are six different choices and I've never, it's, it was unbelievable and he was there every day and it was extraordinary because it was as if he were just a novice writer and yeah. sitting there wanting to be in the process of it all and, and make it good. And Rob, is it true, does he actually say, do you want a two-beat joke or a three-beat joke, which I've heard that he does? He's never, he didn't oh. do that, he didn't do that, but he, he, he had choices, and they were two-beat jokes or three-beat <laughs> jokes. And it's very into rhythm. Yeah. But you're talking about security, uh, artistic security, as well as experience, too. I'm talking too, about strong, yes. strong talents, yes. because the, the kind of directors you were, you were talking about that, that says, I am the boss, that's a weak 
individual. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's, I mean, very clearly a weak individual. And there aren't, I don't, I don't see a lot of them around. No, I don't think, I think it's an old school thing. It's the, the directors I see, it was the 60s. The directors I see and I meet with and I, and I go see their work and I talk to them later or talk to actors who've just worked with them, they're all you know, Michael Mayer, Mark Brokaw, the Chris, mm -hmm. Chris Ashley. They're all kind of the same kind of easygoing guys mm -hmm. who just like ask it first thing and they meet the playwright. What's the story about? Tell me what the story's about. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. What do you want this play to be? Okay. We agree. And then, and then they go and they do it. It's been Don't you think choreographers have changed too, Kathleen? In oh, there used to be meanies. Yes, there's none of this. I mean, I think that also comes from some of the concert dance world, too, when you have, you know, guys like Jerome Robbins who were sort of in the concert dance world or, you know, where, where the choreographer or the artistic director choreographer is the dictator. And I think that, you know, that sort of, okay, kids, five, six, seven, you know, that sort of yelling at, and at the dancers. And oh, and because I was wrong, wrong, terrible. And yeah, a few of those you, yeah, you really worked with Michael oh Bennett. My. I was like crossing over <laughs> yeah. about the time I, I that they were that, really I mean, cruel. You know, the other thing, of course, is that it's, uh, we laugh about this all the time, that in chorus line, you know, Sheila says, I'm going to be 30 real soon, and I'm real glad. And she's like, oh, she's so old, you know. <laughs> and, um, and now, I mean, the average age of dancers in, in an ensemble is over 30. And I think that um, because we want, as choreographers, we don't want just sort of anonymous um, kids. We want experienced, interesting, vivid people. And so, because you know, you have eight. Because, you right, I've, eight. I've only got eight. And so they all have to be unique and individual. And you know what? I just feel so lucky to have these people who I really feel are my peers in the room and working with them and creating something for them and specifically for their talents. So there's not this sense of like, okay, it's not the Rockettes. It's not, all right, everybody in unison and no individuality and, and uh, you know, do it, just do it the way I do it and shut up and don't have an opinion. I mean, that, that kind of, you know, dancing, I think, what is changed not. What that? Could what I you? We have some questions question. from the audience and I think you'll have to answer them. And then if we have any time, we can continue yeah, talking. What it, question, Mr. Piermeyer, do you still think there is a broader audience for mysteries? Do I still think there's, a, there's an audience, Broadway audience for mysteries? Yes, I absolutely do. Um, Voices for me was a very inter interesting experience. Production-wise, it was a delightful experience for me. Uh, we got uh, essentially the, we had audiences who were really having a great time, and uh, we uh, hit a critical barrier when the uh, critics came and found, and were for the most part very resistant to that. My the the heart of the critical response to this play was happened when a one of the noted critics came up to a person involved in the show during the intermission absolutely furious and said, it's disgusting how much the audience is enjoying this play. No, <laughs> no. Well, that sort of sounds right. And so, yes, I think there's an audience. I don't think that... Uh, name, name. <laughs> I don't think that critics are a part of that audience or wish to be a part of that audience. That's the problem. That's the problem. I was, in, I was in Cape May, New Jersey last weekend, and someone there was a local theater professional theater company doing a production of Angel Street. And I had a great time. I was there and everyone in the audience was having a great time. I just think like what this is this is such a great form and it's being neglected. Next question. Yeah, hi. My name is Margot Evan Goldman and I'm an actor. This is directed towards Kathleen and Rob Marshall. 
You appear so complimentary to one another. Has it always been that way, or are you really very competitive? <laughs> I've never thought of it like that before. Are you kidding? I am so proud. I went to Kiss Me Kate the other night. I couldn't be more proud. It's, it's thrilling for me. And um, uh, because we, we do similar work, I guess. We choreograph, and, and I direct, and Kathleen directs. But, you know, there's room for everybody, especially for your really talented sister. So, I mean, I, uh, I, I, I'm I, I mean, I think our, our taste is so similar, because, we, you know, we came from the same environment, and we have so much in common in that way. And, and the way we work is so similar, because I learned my way of working from Robbie. So I think that in that way, you know, we appreciate the same kind of things. We have the same sense of humor. We have the, you know, the same likes and dislikes. So it's, it's, um, I love, I, 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 although when I tell you, when I went to see Cabaret, I mean, I was blown away. I honestly thought I, I had, as, as I've seen brilliant things that Robbie has done, but to see that and how unique and strong and relentless that evening was, and, and from beginning to end, it was just, it, you know, it, it took a, a dangerous tone, and it didn't let up for two and a half hours, and I was, I was blown away, because I thought, oh my God, I didn't, I, I honestly didn't even know that, that Robbie was capable of that kind of intense, intense work, and I was beautiful. Thank you, Kath. <laughs> 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 you ever hate What did you think his weakest piece was? Okay. Okay. No, but well, yeah. drop the ball. The most intense fights growing up were always about what to watch on TV and where to sit to watch it. That's right. That was it. That was always the, that the extent was of always our fights. The extent of the yeah. fights. And they were yeah. big fights, too. Where was the cool place to sit? Not the, the itchy couch. Not the itchy couch, couch. the yeah. big comfy <laughs> chair. Yeah, yeah. knock down drag outs about that. <laughs> I, I don't know if we have time to get into this, but, but what you, John uh, mentioned before, when did this choreographer, this whole attitude change? Do you know when or how or why? Or I think actually that, that when in, this, in the 70s with the dancers in, uh, especially in Fosse shows like in, in Pippin in Chicago and Dancing, when dancers, individual dancers like Anne Reinking and those people became stars, I think people began to see dancers differently. Donna McKechnie and, you know, I think and, and with Chorus Line and those things. Kathy, you don't have to come back. Okay. <laughs> you just have to come back again because it's time to say oh, goodbye. Sorry. And thank you very, very much. <laughs> this wonderfully gifted panel of playwrights, directors, and brother and sister <laughs> I can't tell you how grateful I am to you for being part of the American Theatre Wings working at theatre seminars. Thank you so much for being here.